Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And Annie is taking over the mic yet again today. But first, what's new? Hi, Ben. Been good. Long time no see. <laughs> Just kidding. We can now finally say that we do see each other a lot because very nice. everything is working. Knock on wood. Yeah, I don't even want you to say that <laughs> out loud. But uh, we are in studio. Yay. So hi. Hopefully you're joining us, whether it be on YouTube or we're just in your little ear holes. Hello and welcome back to Cases Sunday Scaries. We are happy to be here. Finally in studio. But soon Annie is going to be out of studio. Right, right back out. <laughs> like once we get comfortable... And we set up in record timing today. We walked in, turned the lights on, connected our cameras, got the mics going. As soon as we get comfortable, I'm leaving. (laughs) Yes. Annie's going to be taking a little bit of time away because she's going to be a mama. So we are giving her time away. We're going to be recording content. So we're not stopping. We're going to pre-record some content. And then you'll have a few episodes that it's just me, myself, and I, which will be a struggle. But then I'll just appreciate you that much more and you come back. And we'll have like a tiny little scary squad member. I love it. I can't wait. I'm so excited. But I'm going to turn over the mic to you. I'm done talking for the day. Well, that's probably a lie. I'll probably interrupt you 52 times as oh, I always case, do. you will. Okay. Well, it is all you. So we know that February is Black History Month. And I love that we decided to focus on cases that aligned with this topic because my eyes have been opened so much. I wouldn't say I was ever naive to anything that the Black community had to face in terms of racism, injustice, and unfairness. But this case really is almost unbelievable. I think back to Tuskegee when nothing could top what happened. And then you see all of these other cases I pulled forth and going to get a little bumpy. I remember specifically during the Gabby Petito case, her dad, Joseph, called out this favoritism that we have called white woman syndrome. And I really like that he used his voice. He said, I want to ask everyone to help all the people that are missing and need help. It's on all of you, everyone that's in this room to do that. And if you don't do it for other people that are missing, that's a shame because that's just not something that Gabby would have wanted. I was impressed that he took his platform, but as I started to dive into these statistics and organizations focused on changing this favoritism, I was very alarmed. One statistic I found is that currently there are an estimated 64,000 Black women or girls who are missing in the U.S. That's a crazy high number, and I'm glad that you pointed that out because if you just think back like the cases that we as a country know by heart, right? Natalie Holloway. John Bonet, Gabby Petito, the Idaho murders, which are all terrible cases and needed coverage, of course. But what do they all have in common? They are all blonde white girls. Mm-hmm. All of them. All of them. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children estimates that out of 613,000 people reported missing in the U.S. last year, over 60% of them were people of color. I don't know about you, but I haven't heard of that many cases. The media focuses on the white people. Mm -hmm. People that look like you and me. And that is absolutely not fair. So as I'm looking over these statistics, and I'm trying to make them make sense in my brain, which they don't, an organization that I had heard of a few times keeps popping across the screen, and it's the Innocence Project. Have you ever heard of it? Well, being in our day in the life of I, true crime podcasters. Yes, I have heard about it. I feel like it's been getting some press even more so recently with like Kim Kardashian helping in whatever way she's helping. Even if she's just bringing attention to cases, that's great. I'm not trying to discount it. She's <laughs> using her privilege to help people that are incarcerated. So like hats off to that. It's just two words I never thought I'd say in the same sentence, right? Kim Kardashian, lawyer. But 
I feel like it's getting a little bit more coverage in the news because of her. Agree. Uh, We'll post a link to the Innocence Project site for our listeners who want to do some research on their own. I highly encourage it because this organization is truly doing the work of a higher power. For those who aren't familiar, the Innocence Project was founded in 1992 by two men, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield, who were both public defenders at Bronx Legal Aid Society. The backbone of this organization is using DNA testing to prove the innocence of people who have been sent away to prison for crimes, and most of the people that I looked into were either on death row or were going to stay in prison for life. We hear so many cases today of DNA helping to put people behind bars, but Barry and Peter are focused on bringing innocent people out of prison and, in some cases, saving them from dying on death row. I'll post a picture of these founders because they just... You know how they always say the eyes are the windows to the soul? Mm -hmm. It shows with Peter and Barry. They are just good people. And as my grandma would say, they have a one-way ticket to heaven. Oh, (laughs) that's the sweetest. That's such a grandma statement to make. I love that. (laughs) To date, the Innocence Project has helped free over 375 people based upon DNA evidence. Sadly, most people spend an average of 14 years behind bars before they are released. One of those people is Anthony Wright. So let's get into today's episode. It was October 1991 in Philadelphia. Police had just discovered the body of 77-year-old Louise Talley on the second floor of her home. She had been sexually assaulted, stabbed to death, and her home had been looted. While law enforcement and investigators were at the crime scene, Someone approached an officer and reported that a 20-year-old man named Anthony Wright was involved in the crime and that he was living in a home close by. Police went to the home, which was located about 300 feet from Louise's residence, and they asked the owners to speak with Anthony Wright. They didn't find Anthony, but they did find Roland St. James and his roommate, John Richardson. Do I know this case? How old was she? 77. You might know it. Yeah, it's starting to sound a little bit Mm -hmm. familiar. Police started talking to the two men, and a few interesting things were revealed. Roland admitted to police that he and John rented rooms in their house to people who were into hardcore drugs, specifically crack cocaine. Okay, what time period is this? This is 1991. Yeah, you guys will remember, if you haven't already, listen to the Isaac Wright Jr. case, because I give a little brief history of what New York and other parts of the country were like during this time when it comes to crack cocaine. It was crazy, but... It is funny to me that they're like, yeah, we rent our space out typically to extreme drug users. Can you imagine like filling out that renting application and it's like, check yes or no if you are using drugs? Yes. Okay, perfect. You're in. Right. You're approved. No questions asked. Well, he also admitted that he helped to buy crack for his tenants. Well, you know, what a gentleman. I'm like, why are you admitting all of this? Because he was feeling the pressure. Because of this confession, he was handcuffed and taken down to the station for further questioning. While at the station, Roland was informed that he was the primary suspect in the murder because while looking around his house for Anthony, police found a television belonging to Louise. Oh, not a good look. No. When I read this, my jaw was kind of on the floor because police went there just to ask for Anthony and they found out this man's like, I buy cocaine for my tenants. And yes, this is a crack house. Not just cocaine, but crack. Roland is obviously feeling the pressure from cops. So he signed a statement saying that a man named Anthony Wright told him he stabbed a woman, and that Anthony gave Roland the television so that he could sell it for him. For drugs. For drugs. Got it. 
The roommate, John, was also held at the station for nearly 24 hours, and while he was there, being questioned about Louise's sexual assault, murder, and robbery, he also signed a statement saying that Anthony Wright asked him to be a lookout while he went into Louise's house, but that John had refused because he knew Louise. You're not going to be a lookout because you know Louise, but if it's anybody else, it's like, all right, well, that one's fair game. Go ahead. So true. Well, there's some scruples missing in this household. There is. And you might be wondering how the name Anthony Wright comes up because he is the main character of this case. But you have to keep in mind that when police went to that door knocking on it, they asked for his name. So that gave Roland and John a name to kind of go, hey, I know you were looking for Anthony. Yeah, he actually did tell us to do X, Y, and Z. Mm. When police heard this, they started digging around and they found out where Anthony lived and they decided to pay him a visit. Anthony was 20 years old and a dad to a younger son, Tony Wright Jr. He had dreams of playing in the NFL, and he was known around town as Bolo due to his impressive boxing skills. All right. We love this. He was a Philly native and a total mama's boy who had big dreams and goals that he wanted to accomplish. When he answered the knock on the door from police, he had no idea how much his life was about to change. He was told that he was the main suspect in the sexual assault and murder of 77-year-old Louise Talley. He voluntarily went down to the station to clear his name. He wanted to set the story straight. He had been working at his construction site all day, and then he went to a nightclub that night. So he had an alibi. He was completely clueless about this crime. Sadly, this is where things start to go downhill for Anthony. Well, I think the knock on the door was where things started to go downhill. Can you imagine if you're like, uh, I did what? what? What are you talking about? And you know you have an alibi. You're 20 years old. You have your whole life ahead of you. You're talking to cops. Like, that that makes me nervous. Yeah, I cry when I get pulled over. Same. According to the three detectives who worked the case, Martin Devlin, Manuel Santiago, and Frank Jarbinski, Anthony signed a nine-page typed confession admitting that he sexually assaulted and killed Louise after going into her home to rob her of money and valuables so that he could buy crack cocaine. Nine pages nine pages. It gets really weird. The detectives claimed he signed the statement within two hours of being at the interrogation room. The statement gave few details. It recounted what Anthony was wearing the day, which consisted of a Chicago Bulls sweatshirt, jeans, and Fila shoes. And the statement went on to say that those items were still in his bedroom. You might be listening to this and going, okay, like, where's the case going here? He signed a confession People saw him at the scene, supposedly, case closed, next episode. No, I'm saying, what in the world is going on? If they have these clothes, wouldn't they also be entering that into evidence? And they would be, I mean, do we know how she was killed? She was stabbed, Mm -hmm. correct? So they don't have the clothes. The statement says that he owned the clothes. But they were in his room. Yes. They haven't been there yet. They just brought him down to the station. They're doing a little confession. Oh, they haven't searched anything. Correct. I was going to say, that's not a crime that wouldn't have some blood transfer. Right. But Anthony gives a completely different story to what happened. For starters, Anthony didn't willingly give a confession after only two hours. He gave it under extremely stressful circumstances. He was so stressed and overwhelmed that witnesses say he spent hours in that room crying out for his mother, Myrtle, who was actually in the same station crying back for him. Oh, why is the name Myrtle such like the sweetest, most wholesome name I've ever heard? It's so sweet. The first thing that investigators did that was confirmed and was so wrong was they handcuffed Anthony to the chair and they pressed his face against the table, putting pressure on his neck. They then said they were going to, 
quote, rip his eyes out and, quote, skull F him. Excuse me? They then tried to play good cop, bad cop and told Anthony that he could go Wait, home. Hold on. Hold on, Annie. It's un- It gets worse. How do you play good cop, bad cop after you say that- what you just said? Because they told him if he signed the confession, they were going to let him go. But they didn't allow him to read the contents of the confession. At only 20 years old, Anthony had never had trouble with the law. So I don't want to say he trusted them, but hearing that he could give his, you know, John Hancock and then go home, he signed it. Well, and I don't even know if it has anything to do with trust. If someone says they're going to do that to my school, I don't trust them immediately. No, you want out of that room. But that's more to the point of like, you're going to do anything you can to get out of there, especially someone that young probably isn't all that aware of their rights either. No. This confession is so infamous that to this day, it's called the Santiago Devlin Confession. And not surprisingly, this interrogation was never recorded. Shocker. Because of this signed confession, Anthony was charged with capital murder, rape, robbery, burglary, theft, and weapon violations. Detectives obtained a search warrant and went to Anthony's house, where they later said they discovered the bloodstained clothing in his bedroom that matched what was on that confession, the Chicago jacket, jeans, and shoes. Fishy. No, this is, this is ridiculous. How long after this confession did they go into his home? That night. Anthony was put into jail to await his trial date. Let's talk about the trial. Two years later, in May 1993, Anthony's trial started. Both Roland and John, the crack dealers in the beginning, testified and implicated Anthony of murder. <laughs> Not the crack dealers. The, no. The very nice landlords. <laughs> totally going to trust them. Two teens also testified that they were on the street when they saw Anthony go into Louise's house. The detectives brought up the bloody clothes. They brought up a crime scene analyst who testified that the blood found on the clothing was the same type as Louise's. The analyst also said that semen was identified on these articles of clothing and Louise's body, and it could have come from Anthony Wright. Because we're still not in the DNA science that we are today. It's still really new. Right. So it's more blood typing and things like that. Okay. During the trial, Anthony's mother, Myrtle, who we love, name my next pet Myrtle. It's so cute. And that's not disrespectful towards his mom. I just think it's the sweetest name. It is. She testified and told a completely different story. She stated that when investigators came to the house, they only took one piece of clothing, a white jumpsuit which Anthony had worn to work that day. She went on to say that she knew for a fact Anthony didn't even own a Chicago Bull sweatshirt or the Fila shoes. So we have to remember, in that confession it said, There was bloody clothing that investigators had, and it consisted of the Chicago Bulls sweatshirt, jeans, and shoes. And now in court, they're saying they found that in the house. But Myrtle's saying, no, 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 they didn't. They only took a white jumpsuit Like he didn't even own this. Exactly. Anthony then takes the stand, and he denied ever being in Louise's house. I have to interrupt you and say, usually anyone, even like a defense attorney that is terrible, will tell you not to do that, especially in a capital case. So the fact that he is so adamant about his innocence that I'm sure he was told not to get on that stand because you can tell your side of the story, but you also have to face cross-examination. Yeah. So to me already, anytime like someone takes a stand, I, I either think you're not so smart or you are so convinced of your own innocence that you don't think there's any way that they can like mess up your words because you're telling facts. Right. And you're so sure of your innocence that you know you can convince them. But that's not the way the world works. No. He denied ever being in Louise's house. He said he didn't even know Roland, John, or any of the teenagers. 
He had never seen them before. He gave his airtight alibi. He even gave his pant and shoe size, which didn't match the bloody clothing supposedly found in his room. He also said that the confession was false and that he signed the statement only after detectives threatened to physically assault him if he refused to do so. It's now this big old game of he said, she said, the mom said, but what's at stake is literally a 20-year-old's life. And when you look at this young black man going up against very well-respected white investigators, there's going to be racial bias. Absolutely. Like he's trying to convince a jury of supposedly his peers. And yes, I'm kind of chuckling at that because that usually is not quite the case. But trying to convince a jury that he, a black man, is the victim of basically conspiracy theory by police officers. Not going to end well. The jury deliberated and on June 8th, they convicted Anthony of capital murder, rape, theft, burglary, robbery, and weapons violation. The jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict on imposing the death penalty, voting seven to five in favor of death, so way too close for comfort. But with no unanimous verdict, Anthony was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So they're slamming the book on this kid. The only other follow-up question I think I have at this point in the case is we don't have the best DNA and analysis at this time. I get that. But for first-degree murder, especially capital murder cases, how did they prove intent? Because that's the biggest thing is like, oh, he planned this. Is that because he supposedly told these roommates to be on the lookout for him? I think that combined with the witnesses placing him at the scene combined with that signed confession. That signed confession is a smoking gun. Got it. Because they're saying he admitted to it. And if you're on a jury, it's like he admitted to it. Now he's going back on his word. This clothing was found. Like, are you going to trust Myrtle or are you going to trust these investigators who have been with the police force for years? Right. A mom trying to defend her son. Years go by, 20 to be exact, and it's now 2013. The Innocence Project got a hold of Anthony's case. They were able to secure the semen sample found inside Louise Talley, and it was revealed, drumroll please, that Anthony was not the source of the semen. I'm going to put out my detective guess. Okay, let's hear it. The very first witness that talked to the police, it was him. No. I'm so deflated. I'm like, oh. <laughs> the DNA implicated a different man by the name of Ronnie Bird, a man with no connection whatsoever to Anthony. And it was also discovered that Ronnie had passed away. And he had literally gotten away with murder while Anthony was sitting in a jail cell for a crime he didn't commit. You know, obviously no one wants to face the repercussion of their actions, no matter how big those are. I'm 35 years old. I still don't want to tell my parents when I do something that they'd be disappointed right. in. So I understand <laughs> that. But if you do something so heinous, it is equally heinous to me to then watch this trial probably play out in the news or the media. He murdered two people, basically, in my yeah. opinion. yeah. Because Scummy person. not that he you know, got the death penalty, but his life was gone. And this little disgusting human that would do this to anyone, much less a 77-year-old, is just sitting there watching this all play it out like, whoa, that was convenient. Yeah. He's like, whew, dodged a bullet on that one. This finding was huge for Anthony, the Innocence Project, and Anthony's family. They felt like justice was finally going to be served and Anthony would be released. One would think, but no. Prosecutors chose to ignore the facts. They reluctantly agreed to throw out Anthony's 1993 conviction, but they decided to retry him. Why? Because of the confession? Corruption, Corruption, the confession, and I think they just didn't want to be proven wrong. Well, right. Pride, ego, all that stuff. I also want to point out, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, that maybe because that 
the guy that actually did this was dead, how do they then not prove that they were both not involved with it or that's something fair. like that? Yeah, that's fair. I think yours is the honest answer, but if I'm going to play it, you know, all sides to the, of the other court. side, right. that maybe there's part of that going into this too. Because they decided to retry him, that meant he would have to remain in prison until his trial. This is frustrating, but what makes this even worse is that it was later revealed that neither the Philadelphia Police Department nor the district attorney's office conducted any additional investigating into the case. Of course they didn't. It's like they truly didn't even care about Anthony's life. They were like, nope, we're going to retry him, put him back in prison for three additional years, which is a long time. Before his next trial? Yeah, before his next trial. That's a thousand days. After he knows the semen didn't match him. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't. No, no, I can't. In August 2016, with his legal team by his side, Anthony went back to court. During the retrial, Anthony's defense team came with the facts. They went over the false confession that was forced, the DNA that belonged to Ronnie, how the investigators trusted two known crack cocaine dealers who were also facing charges in the case, and how investigators seemed to lie about the bloody clothing. Anthony was so impressed by his defense, specifically the one attorney, Peter Newfield, who was a co-founder of the Innocence Project. He gave this super heartwarming memory, and I'm going to read it. So he says, Peter Newfield was so good in that opening. I just wanted to get up and kiss him. I had goosebumps. I kept telling Nina, pinch me. Pinch me to see if I'm alive. I was holding my breath. I was hoping that time would stop. And it wasn't just the opening argument that was incredible. For the closing argument, I had my local attorney from Philly, Sam Silver. He was brilliant as well. And then I had Nina and another Philly lawyer named Rebecca. The whole team was awesome, so I didn't have a worry in the world. During the trial, I had the chance to testify. It was great. I'd been waiting for that opportunity for 25 years. When I started testifying, some of the jurors started crying. One of them even called for a recess, and she later told us it was because hearing me describe what I went through was so emotional. The trial lasted 11 days. On the 11th day, the jury went to deliberate, and Anthony went back to his cell. Well, and I think sometimes with stuff like this, the way my brain thinks, I forget how long a year really is. And then if I look back at like everything I did last year, right? The puppies came. Surprise. You know, like all these things that took months out of the year, it seems like such a long time. And then to think of where I was at 20 years ago. Well, 20 years ago, I was in high school. What has happened in my life since then? So much. And he missed out on that entire chunk. And it's not like he has, you know, entertainment to pass him by. They're sitting in prison. There's all these additional dangers around you constantly for 20 years knowing that you didn't do it yeah knowing that all your friends think you did something knowing that your son thinks you did something like well think about all the years of his son's life all formidable years gone young adult years gone we say like 20 years seven years whatever the conviction is and sometimes it's not enough and we know that but in these types of situations it's like i can't imagine knowing you were innocent, and then trying to go back and reclaim your life. And not be a super bitter person. I would be so mad at the world. Oh, I would, no. Yeah, I would not be fun to be around. The trial lasted 11 days. On the 11th day, the jury went to deliberate, and Anthony went back to his cell. He said that he sat down in his cell and was kind of reliving the trial when a guard came and got him. The guard told Anthony that one of his attorneys wanted to talk to him. Sam, his defense attorney, came over and said the magical words, we've got a verdict. The jury had reached their decision in less than one hour. What's it going to be? No, Annie, you're kidding me. Everyone filed into the courtroom and the bailiff asked the jury, 
how do you find the verdict for the charge of first-degree murder? The forewoman said in a loud, clear voice, not guilty. Annie! <laughs> that is not nice. I had you like in the palm of my hand. like, how long is this going to go on for this poor man? The judge, oh, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> the judge then asked, how do you find the verdict in the charge of murder in the second degree? The foreperson said, not guilty. How do you find it in the third degree? Asked the judge. Again, the lady said not guilty. She said not guilty for every single thing that Anthony had been charged with. When Anthony heard the news, he said he almost passed out. He stood there crying. His son was crying. Everyone was crying. Like, I'm over here kind of getting emotional because I feel just this weight, like, on my shoulders knowing what he went through and knowing how bad the system failed him. It was clear as day that Anthony Wright was an innocent man. I'm not sure if it's protocol or what, but the judge didn't let Anthony leave from the courtroom. He actually made him get on a bus and go all the way back to jail. That is normal. It is? Okay. Yep. Um, I actually had to look into this recently because I thought that was super weird too. Right. I did too. I was like, why couldn't he just walk out? Um, one, they have to do like the paperwork and the processing of it. And then my understanding, obviously it depends on the state and stuff, but that's part of it. It's just, you know, they got to cross their T's, dot their I's and like have him fill out all this stuff, give him back his possessions that he came into jail upon like being arrested and stuff. But it's just paperwork and rigmarole. Plus they have to get through the systems that he's an innocent man. So got like, it. That makes he doesn't sense. have a warrant out for his arrest. He has been, you know, exonerated from all of these things. Like it takes a while for the paperwork to catch up with the verdict. Got it. Anthony actually was kind of happy to go back because he said it was a celebration like crazy. His entire family and all of his attorneys traveled to the jail. There were prison guards there and he heard them saying, why did the judge make him go back to prison? He just spent 25 years there. Like, just let him go. 25 years? Yeah. Oh, because he had to wait three years. Right. It. Exactly. He had to wait the additional three years. The next day, Anthony got a chance to meet almost all of the jurors. They had been waiting for him right after the verdict was announced. But since he had to go back to the jail, his lawyers invited them to come to their office the next day. When Anthony finally met them, they all were hugging and crying. Mm. One of them had written a statement. She told Anthony that from that moment on, he could do whatever he wanted. His life was his. Two days later, Anthony ran into the jury forewoman, Grace, on the street, the woman who was very proud. Her name's Grace. Her name's Grace. Of course it is. Saved Why? by Grace, literally, oh. like the Bible verse. <laughs> Love it. That's perfect. Anthony ran out after her and called her name. She turned around, saw him, dropped her purse in the middle of the street and <laughs> screamed, oh my God, Tony, and ran over to give him a huge hug. Oh. Like just so many emotions in that, you know, short time span. This might seem like a happy ending, but we talked earlier, Anthony missed so many precious years of his life. He missed his son growing up. He missed his chance to try out for the NFL. He lost touch with his friends. You know, we only get one life on this earth and he spent 25 of those in prison. The hardest thing for Anthony was that his mother, Myrtle, passed away in Not 1998. Not Myrtle. Anthony was only 27 years old, and she never got to see her baby walk free. Well, she knew he was innocent. She knew. R.I.P. Myrtle. When Anthony was finally able to go home, a number of judges told his lawyers in Philly that they wanted to meet him. He went to go see one of them, walked into the office, and was told, you have a job here. People really rallied around Anthony. That's insane. It is. And I think they understood that he wasn't going to have this, like, awesome resume, but he needed a job and he needed money to get back on his feet. And as a judge, knowing how badly he was treated and that he was innocent all these years, he got a job. It was not like a lawyer job, obviously. Right. But they wanted to give him something for what, you know, the, their predecessors had taken away from him. That's, I mean, that's commendable. It was. 
But Anthony wanted justice. He wanted the investigators who did this to him to pay. Yes. They had lied under oath. They had fabricated this huge story and given facts that cost him decades of his life. So Anthony and the Innocence Project decided to take action. On the two-year anniversary of Anthony's acquittal, the Innocence Project filed a formal complaint against the assistant district attorney, Bridget Kern. They accused her of official misconduct. The 29-page complaint requests that the board investigate new evidence that Bridget allowed two police witnesses to give what she knew was false testimony at his 2016 retrial. It went on to say that Bridget knew the investigator's testimony was false because she herself had explained the results to these detectives in detail before the trial. So she was like coaching them, basically. She was, and she knew they were going to lie. Oh, wow. Under Pennsylvania's rule of legal ethics, Bridget was obligated to inform the judge and the jury that the detective's testimony was false, but she never did that. Let's talk about that. A Chicago Bulls hoodie, jeans, and Fila shoes. Remember how they were supposedly found at Anthony's house? Those articles of clothing belonged to Louise Talley, the victim. Okay, well, she obviously was very cool then because that is like a very hip outfit for a 77. I'm not making light of this. Like, again, poor Louise is a victim. But she was styling. She was. But you know how in that confession, they have these very specific articles of clothing that Anthony signed and said were in his room. They already knew it because they got him from her house. Exactly. And so, of course, they'd have her blood on Yep. And they talked about the shoes and everything not matching up. But if he was wanting to play in the NFL... And this is a 77-year-old woman. I'm imagining those shoes, the discrepancy between sizes (laughs) was pretty alarming. This isn't like the OJ, like, the glove doesn't fit. You must acquit or whatever. That would be like, let's just say he's a size 12. I don't think a 77-year-old woman is wearing size 12 or over. I mean, even size 10 in men, I doubt she was wearing. And even the pant size, which during court, he's like, my pant size is this and the pants you have are this. She probably had a little snatched waist. And he's like, yeah, he's trying to go out for the NFL. So he's probably over six foot or something, you know. But I still love that she was styling. Right. Bridget wasn't the only one held accountable for her actions. In 2021, retired Philly detectives Manuel Santiago, Martin Devlin, and Frank Drawoski were arrested and charged with perjury and false swearing in official matters for their 2016 testimony in the retrial of Anthony Wright. A preliminary hearing was scheduled for August 2021, but I was not able to find a single thing about where that case is currently standing today. Could be COVID. That's what I was thinking. I know after 2020, a lot of cases were delayed, but I will have my Google alerts set and keep everyone posted on that trial because I'm really curious to see what happens. Well, I'm not curious. I just want to see the right thing happen. So hopefully it does. But I guess I'm curious, like, how did they even get this man's name to begin with? Good question. That's never been released. The only thing they have is someone walking up to a cop and saying, Anthony Wright did this. So I could be right. What if that 20-year-old witness who's unnamed was the killer? It could have been. They maybe were planting that seed because that is what the cops heard and they ran with it. Also, how many Anthony Wrights are there? Probably tons. It's a pretty common name. Yeah. I don't know. All of this is super suspicious to me. Like, I get that police want to close cases, but they need to do so ethically and go through the physical. I mean, it's not like they even, they didn't plant physical evidence. It's like they took it from this poor woman and then just made it up that where they found it. And just were like, our word is gold. This is what happened. And that horrible confession. I mean. Yeah, there's a reason that's not on video, right? I understand that DNA testing wasn't what it is now back in the day. 
but they had video cameras. Yeah. I remember because there's some pretty embarrassing home videos of me <laughs> lying around somewhere. But I can't imagine what he went through. But I also can't imagine in my head going, I know that the killer's out there. What did these police officers have to gain? And this is what I always like. What was the intention? Did they believe that he was the killer and that thought that they were doing the right thing by doing this? Because maybe three people had told them. So we got him and we're going to make sure to close this. Or are you just a horrible person? I think both. I think both things are true. I think first, as a cop, getting a signed confession is powerful. Let's be honest. Oh, of course. They didn't do it the right way, but they did have his name given by three different people. The teenager on the street and then the two crack cocaine dealers, even though they literally walked up and said, we're looking for Anthony Wright. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's who did it. But I also think the reputation. They were three hotshot investigators, which is part of the reason why this is such a big case. Because even though they're retired now, they're still getting held accountable for it. I think it's just a lot of small details that just have this like big repercussion. We do have to hold the police to a higher standard than the general public, right? Because they have power. They're entrusted into our safety. We're teaching kids and adults alike to like fear them, respect them. You know, they're there for quote unquote our safety. However, we're humans. So I can understand if they're, as much as we hate to see it, mistakes in cases and investigation, you know, a paper goes missing or whatever. We're humans. Those things are going to happen no matter how many checks and balances you have in place. But to take evidence and just outright lie about where you got it from, I would love to see the shoe comparisons. <laughs> like that that doesn't even make sense to me. To take this little old lady's shoes and be like, sorry, 77 is not old. <laughs> um, to take this woman in the prime of her life to take her shoes and say that it belonged to him. In my head, the picture is pretty clear. But then for everyone to get on board and go along with this, at what cost? Like, what do you have to gain from putting this man behind bars right, for like, the rest of his life? How do you sleep at night? Not even that. But like, I try to think of like, even if it's bad intention, someone is gaining something, right? You're either following like your moral compass and that gives you the ability to sleep at night or you have bad intentions of like greed, money, power, you know, all that. You don't really as a detective Yes, you close the case, but you haven't closed the case. You right. ha there's somebody out there who did this. So it doesn't make, it just doesn't make any sense. To, I'm glad it doesn't make sense to me because that means I wouldn't do it. But I don't understand it. Well, I'm going to ask listeners. Listeners, <laughs> can you explain this one to me? Because I understand the case. It's heartbreaking. But what is the motivation for these detectives to literally plant evidence? Makes no sense. I know that was a really tough case to listen to but a the frustrating one. it is but the innocence project is doing a ton of good so we're going to link off to their website you can go there and really read about more stories like anthony's and just kind of see a little piece of good in the world because that's what they really are doing well and not only that but i'm going to be a little bit vulnerable here and say that a lot of these cases it's been very eye-opening like you said annie to read because we I'm not ignorant to the injustices of the world, but I think I am ignorant to how often it is still happening. Yes, we live in a day of you know social media, everyone has their cameras, and we see it more in the media, but just on like a systematic level, it's not something I grew up really seeing. I grew up in a tiny little town in Alaska, and this wasn't part of our conversations as children. It wasn't a part of our conversations. In high school, it wasn't part of our conversations. I didn't even know it should be part of our conversations. So I would encourage you guys, just like Annie and I are saying, we're learning a lot. 
And it's definitely taken me down some very frustrating rabbit holes when you really get into just how much the system has been and continues to be stacked up against these people. So we encourage you to check out these Educate Yourselves. We're along with you on that journey, but I'm really glad that you covered that. I'm glad the Innocence Project is around and they are doing a heck of a lot of good. And I hope that Anthony and RIP Myrtle, but (laughs) I hope that Anthony is living a wonderful life that he deserves with some of the government money that is very much owed to him. How much did he win? He was awarded nearly $10 million in damages for his wrongful imprisonment. It's it's a historical settlement with the city of Philly. You don't get your 20 years back, but that at least gives you a fresh start, especially like you said, he has nothing on his resume. It's not like you're going to walk into a place. So I'm glad he got a job. Hope he spent that money on something fun, vacation for him and his son. A nice car, something. Forget that. He needs experiences. I hope <laughs> he went to like Costa Rica with oh, his yeah. son and just like enjoyed the sunshine on his skin after being behind bars. Thank you so much for covering that case, Annie. You guys, if you would like to follow us on Instagram, you can do that at a case of the Sunday Scaries. If you want to follow us on YouTube, whoop, whoop, it's youtube.com backslash at sign case of the Sunday Scaries. Pretty easy. Just Sunday Scaries everywhere. So please follow along as we start this crazy world of video podcasting. You want to see our faces? But we are so excited to break out with some new adventures. You can also support this podcast at any of the links below. But as always, until then. 